Hi, this is Ian from Anantech, and today we're at Mobile World Congress for episode 31 of the Anantech podcast. And with me today is Andre from Shannon, one of our mobile editors. Say hi, Andre. Hi, everybody. And Mobile World Congress has been four days of fun, plus another day of press events and getting blisters on our feet. But a number of new phones have been launched, and we want to talk about topics surrounding the phones themselves and everything else. So the first phone we covered was the uh, Samsung Galaxy S6 and S6 Edge. Every year for the past few years now, Samsung has been launching Galaxy at Mobile World Congress, usually in the same hall with a lot of fanfare and about two to 3,000 people in the hall. Yeah, pretty much it was very crowded. So the device is main difference between them being that the S6 Edge has two edges. Um, uh, of course, yeah, the Edge is quite a new kind of form factor for Samsung. Well, the Note 4 had an Edge. Well, the Note 4 had the Edge, but on one side, and the the 6 Edge is quite different because it hasn't quite the same radius. The hardware under the S6, we've got Exynos 7420, which is... Yeah, pretty much Samsung's first 49-nanometer SOC. This is the first time we've seen 40 nanometers in mobile space so this is quite a feat for Samsung I've been able to actually look at the voltages on the GPU we're seeing some pretty impressive advancements in terms of voltage like I saw like minus 200 minus 300 uh, maybe volts compared to the Exynos 5433 in the Note 4 so this this is going to have some very big impact on power. And I mean, by extension, battery life. Exactly. When we get the samples in, we'll test and find out. So we've got four A57s, four A53s, running at 2.1 and 1.5 gigahertz. Exactly. And <clears throat> three gig of LPDDR4, and the standard NAND size is 32, 64, 128. So there's no 16 gig storage option, but there's also no micro SD, and that's caused um, a bit of upset among some people. There's been quite a lot of drama around it, so this is quite a big drop from from Samsung. There's been pretty much uh, many people actually buy Samsung just because of the micro SIM and the removable battery. So Samsung dropping this off from their flagship device is quite. Horrorizing uh, decision. Decision, decision yeah. yeah. So, along with the storage, um, we've got 5.1 inch 1440p Super AMOLED. Both devices have category 6 LTE support. We'll see about that. Actually, we're still not sure what kind of a modem we have inside, what, what Samsung is going to decide on uh, the different models around the world. We did hear that Samsung is going forward with their own modem in most countries. Where they don't have the portfolio, they'll have to use somebody else's. Exactly. Especially in the, in the US and on CDMA carriers like Verizon and Sprint. I think we're going to see a Qualcomm modem. Still not sure which one. So, but when Samsung is using their own modem, it's still an off-die solution, right? Yeah, pretty much. They don't, they don't have a... They wouldn't need an, a separate modem otherwise. So with the device, we've got 138 grams weight on the S6, 132 grams on the S6 Edge, but despite that, the S6 Edge is slightly thicker. I mean, we both went into the Samsung after show, and we also went dur during the show to the Samsung booth to play around with these devices. Personally, I preferred the S6 because the S6 Edges just felt weird. I know, it's holding my hand, but you yeah. felt the opposite way. I felt actually, yeah, I actually felt the, the edge was much more ergonomic in hand. It was much nicer to hold, but the screen was just weird because you had the size cut off. So Android actually doesn't consider the the size of the device as some special area, and every application actually curves around on the edges. So you're actually losing a bit of screen estate on the Edge version, and I found it kind of weird. I don't think people are going to really like that once they realize how strange it actually feels. The Note 4, on the other hand, the side area was a special area in the OS, and uh, everyday applications didn't overlap on it. 
it's a question of getting used to the idea of this wraparound, um, but it could potentially be fixed in software if Samsung wanted to do it. If they would fix it still, people would lose the screen estate because you have a narrower screen yep. I mean, area which you can use for applications. By virtue of what we've just said, I would say that they would that they would sell more S6s, the more S6 edges. I I don't know. People people will like the edge because it really looks attractive. We're gonna see when we're gonna review the device how it how it actually holds up in everyday use. Both devices have similar sort of battery levels. You get a slightly bigger battery in the S6 edge. Both devices, 2x2 AC, NFC, wireless charging, Android 5, they haven't announced any sort of pricing yet, but I've seen estimates around the, uh, you know, approaching the 1000 mark. Yeah, we'll see about that. I'm not sure the 1000 mark is quite that correct, but uh, it definitely seems that the edge is about 100 dollars slash euros more expensive than the normal version when comparing the same size to and if we look at this from a ter- from from how Samsung's fortunes have been faring, I mean, the last year has always been news about how Samsung are losing in markets such as China, where they're losing market share and we're seeing profits fall. How does the S6 and the S6 Edge play into how Samsung are going to fare in 2015? In those markets like China and Asia, I think they're going to have a really hard time because Huawei... All the other Chinese vendors uh, like Xiaomi, Meizu, we saw pretty good products, so it's going to depend. I've seen a few analysts predict that the S6 will help Samsung regain some of the market share it's lost, at least worldwide. Worldwide, I'm pretty sure about that, because given the competition, yeah. And on the Western market, Samsung pretty much hit, it out of, hit the ball out of the park. Which is a good thing for Samsung. It's a good thing for Samsung, but no, not so good for the consumer, I think. We're going to come back that, to that later when we discuss the M9. Well, yeah, the competition for the S6 was the other main device launched, which was, which was the HTC One M9. And the HTC One M9 is gracious in the fact that it has the Snapdragon 810, which has caused a lot of discussions online about whether it gets hot or whether it doesn't. And the fact that it's shipping in a device shows that whatever happens, it's not detrimental to it actually being in a de- product full stop. Yeah, we're going to see about that. I'm, actually, I I'm still have a, a few doubts about it because we ran some benchmarks on, on the device during the show and it did get a bit hot. So, so it, got, it got warm to the touch it, noticeably if you sustained mm, load. Yeah, noticeably. But the problem was also the performance. I wasn't able to really hit the what you would consider a two gigahertz A fifty seven SOC. So and, uh, uh, under under the spotlight, surrounded by people. We're, obviously, when we get the device in, we'll and we're gonna have to check that if the if if it's gonna be the same with shipping devices. Well, the the Snapdragon eight ten is also in the G Flex too. Yeah. So G Flex two, pretty much same issue. No, we haven't we haven't had the G Flex two in yet, have we? We did test it on in the, during the show. During the show, yeah. Same thing as with the M nine. Well, yeah, I'm uh, I, I'm reluctant to say that under you know show conditions that is uh, that it's going to be that way. I mean, it's going to be something we're going to going to have to revisit. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Once yes. once we shipping devices get out and. Software's finalized. Software's finalized. And do our classic Anantec testing and actually gets the... Yeah, I'm looking forward to repeating actually uh, what I did to the Note 4 and the 5433 Exynos to the new Snapdragons. And we get some in-depth content there. But in terms of the M- the rest of the specs of the M9, we've got a 5-inch 1080p screen, 3 gigs of LPDDR4 again, this time we have 32 gig NAND models, but with microSDs, Qualcomm modems installed for LTE. The camera in the M9, the well, well, one, one of the press releases from HTC, I mean, correct, correct me if I'm misremembering this, um, but they said that the M9 addresses some of the issues that the M8 had with the camera. Yeah, pretty much. So gone is the 4 megapixel, ultra pixel camera on the back. 
it's still actually there on the device, but now it's used as the front camera. Right. Which is, quite, which is kind of funny, if you think about it. Yeah, on the back now we have a 20 megapixel Toshiba sensor with f-stop uh, 2.2, but without OIS. OIS needs to be, so optical image stabilization, the ability to uh, move within a small frame of reference without distorting the picture that much. That technology needs to be on high-end devices. So yeah, this is uh, the second device HTC uh, launched since the M7 without OIS. Or the third, if you count the M7 Max. M7 Max didn't have OIS, it had EIS. Why is this not special? (laughs) Well, if I'm investing five, six, seven, eight hundred into into a device, I want the best camera technology available. I'm not a selfie person. I'd much rather take landscapes and, uh, you know, home movies of my cats, because that's what the internet revolves around. The most important thing ever. But if you were desert, if I was designing the next HTC One, OIS would definitely be. Yeah, pretty much. It's, it, it, HTC needs OIS to compete now. We we played that around with the S Six, and it's pretty much amazing. I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> we should definitely get it in house to make sure we test it under our conditions rather than under their conditions. Um, but. HEC have also been playing around with virtual reality and um, we got to test. I got to test. They invited one of us to come and Andre graciously let me take it because uh, my vision's a bit better than his. But we'll get back to that later in the podcast. So what what about the design of the M9? There's been a lot of discussions. Yeah, we, we, we went up to the M9 and I remember the first thing you said was this edge feels sharp. Yeah. The, so the back edge of the M9, on the back side, on the sides, is like a 90 degree edge, yeah. pretty much. It's a metallic edge. A metallic edge, and I found it pretty sharp. Compared to the M8, it was pretty uncomfortable. I don't know why they did that. To be honest, I didn't notice it until you said something, and even then, I didn't think it was much that much of an issue. But then I guess may, maybe I'm not the target audience for the M9. I'm, I'm more a target audience for something with the word Max in it. But I found it weird that HTC would go back on ergonomics for some reason, even though the design of the M9 is pretty much the same as the M8. We, we spoke to HTC and they said that was some of the feedback that they had. The M9 seemed like an upgrade to the M8, but not much. Yeah, it shape. seems like HTC is now on a two, three year design cycle in terms of external design of the phone, so maybe with the M10 we're going to see something fresh again. And M10, perhaps around the same time. Yeah, same time next year. Same time next year. Same same thing with Samsung Galaxy? I don't think so. I think Samsung's going to continue with this design for another, for next year. No, I mean, but the next edition of the Galaxy phone this time next year. Yeah, pretty much so. <laughs> right. so we're no. going to see the Note, Note 5 in September, I think, at IFA. They've done it for the last three, four years, so I think they're going to continue with this cadence. Yeah. But other devices that were announced at the show, we were managed to crawl into the back of Microsoft's press press event. This was doors open at 7.30, ready for an 8.30 a.m. start. Steve yeah. Elop taking the stage. I remember standing on a stool, essentially, to get pictures. I was right behind you with the laptop trying to take some notes. But what was announced by Microsoft was the next two Lumia devices, which are the Lumia 640 and the Lumia 640XL. Now, I'm pretty sure Brett's going to want to get his hands on these, um, as he has done with our previous uh, Lumia devices. But these are more mid-range products, with the 640 being a 5-inch 720p device with the Snapdragon 400 series SoC, and the XL version being essentially a 5.7-inch equivalent with a slightly bigger battery. We're talking here for €140 for the 3G 640, all the way up to €220 for the LTE XL version. Microsoft acquiring Nokia's Lumia division and aiming for this, that sort of mid-range market. It's a it's a market that's destined to grow, certainly. Whether it's something that people want to invest with on Windows remains to be seen. I mean, these mid-range phones, if you start on Windows as your first ever smartphone device, you learn the ecosystem. 
you learn to develop your apps for somebody like me who's been on Android um, since day one, that's that's where all my stuff is. It would take a pretty spectacular device for me to change to Windows. Yeah, same here. Windows devices are still seem kind of exotic for me. I, I never actually had to use one ever. We have to get you and Brett together. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can hash out the pros and cons of uh, Windows Phone. But we, we had a chance to... Uh, we saw the devices. They didn't actually have any on display to play with. They did actually have a few to play with. I took some photos of them. Oh, right, at the front of the stage exactly, after, exactly, after the demonstration. Yeah, yeah. They, they were uh, pretty much average. I think the, the problem with the Lumia devices is that they don't, don't really have a reasonably sized high-end flagship. They had the other 6-inch XL version, of yeah. which the 640 XL is going to be like the sort of replacement for. Yeah, yeah. But that was still mid-range hardware. The mid-range hardware, yeah, when when we're talking about SOC, yeah. Yeah. But uh, at least a high-end screen would be nice. So, so Super AMOLED. Super AMOLED, Full HD, maybe even higher. We're still not seeing that on uh, on Microsoft uh, phones. I'm of the opinion that Microsoft's trying to play it safe. They're not going all in. They're not trying to lead the market. They just want to see what market share they can get. When when you look at the price, it's it's pretty reasonable, actually. They're pretty competitive at the price. 139 euro for the 640 3G, 159 for the LTE version, and again, for 50 euros more for the XL, 3G, and LTE. Yeah, well, one of the things that was interesting is that they said that both devices will be available in 3G and LTE, but also dual SIM versions of each. So you can have a dual SIM 3G and a dual SIM LTE. Obviously, that's space for the markets where dual SIM is a big thing. So join Latin America, Asia. China, yeah. Yeah. I mean, personally, even though the UK, for me, it's still a single SIM nation and the US is still single SIM. And I still travel enough that I think I warrant a device that needs dual SIM, such that when I come to Barcelona, I can buy a SIM card and I can just stick it in and I can still make and receive calls with my main number. And for somebody that travels, I think dual SIM is a nice thing to have. I don't tend to have access to those dual SIM devices in, in the country. It seems kind of odd. I, I don't know. I don't really need it. I, we, want, we wanted to take a SIM this week for, for MWC, but we ended up not using it at all. No, yeah, yeah. yeah we, it jumped off the plane and straight into the Samsung press conference, wasn't uh, it? Yeah, and after that we pretty much jumped from Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah, which is which is difficult at a, at a show. Luckily, yeah. the Wi-Fi has actually been pretty good at the press events we had to go to. Uh, we were pretty lucky that Samsung cabled up everything in the during the press release. Yes, any any company that offers Ethernet cable to all the press chairs during press events... They need to be praised. Yes, That's absolutely. It was excellent. Other phones that we saw, we saw a couple of um, devices that were um, mixtures between smartphones and point-and-shoot cameras. And the first one we saw was the Lenovo Vibe Shot, which we saw during our Lenovo booth tour. And this was a 5-inch smartphone which offered tricolor flash... Um, Snapdragon 615 with Quad A53s and a big little, 3 gig DRAM, 32 gig storage, micro SD card, so a pretty high mid range phone, except it lacked on the battery. We thought that a 2900 milliamp hour battery for something that requires tricolor flash. I'm not sure about it, it was a pretty thin device. It, it exchanged battery for thinness. We're going to see how efficient it's, it's going to be. It doesn't have a very power-hungry SoC, so double quad-core A53s. I don't think it's going to be that power-sipping. It's going to also depend on the display. And yeah, you're not going to use the tree, tree flash all the time, so... I, I guess. We'll, we'll see. The main element of the camera was the fact that it had, had a 16-megapixel camera. Yeah, I'm still not sure what, what kind of a sensor they had. We're going to have to follow up on that. But yeah, it, 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 it looked like it wanted to mimic the point-and-shoot cameras. It, the design of the phone also had side stripe, you, you see in point-and-shoots. 
this hash also was kind of trying to mimic the design of a xenon for hash. Sure, sure. Well, the, the fact is, when you when you pick up those sort of point and shoots, you know, you can pick them up for maybe a hundred dollars, hundred and forty for a reasonable, you know, simple one before you get into the DSLRs. Or, or you could, for for the point and shoots without removable lenses, because this didn't have a removable and interchangeable lens. The device, the the Lenovo Vibe shot itself was priced at three forty nine, which if you think about it, is that that's three forty nine dollars. If you think about it, that's a two hundred two hundred twenty dollar smartphone and a hundred and thirty point and shoot camera. If you're looking for both devices, is pretty reasonable. That sort of $350 price range if you wanted both. I think they would be pretty competitive due to the price, but we're still going to see how it ends up in terms of quality. This is one of the things we've seen that we've asked for a review sample for, Yeah. along with everything else. So um, we'll get it in-house and have a look. The other sort of mixed smartphone camera hybrid that we saw was actually by chance. We uh, scheduled some time to just walk around the show and we jumped to the to the Panasonic booth and they showed uh, the Lumix CM1. This was a smartphone with a camera that had four times optical zoom, a one inch sensor, it had a separate lens, the six element lens, um, with desktop 2.2, it shoots RAW, Snapdragon 801. You played around with it more than I did. What I, did you think? I think it was pretty impressive because the camera was uh, Panasonic used their own custom camera, not the Android one. So it shoots RAW video, RAW pictures. We can uh, adjust all manual exposure, ISO, white balance, everything you expect in a normal Panasonic. Lumix guy. For the show, you have a Lumix GF3, which has interchangeable lenses. Exactly. Would you consider using one that was a combination smartphone? Personally, not really, because uh, I still prefer the big lens on a dedicated camera. I don't think Panasonic is going to compete with that at all. But for people who do like to take lots of pictures, it's a pretty solid device because it's the first really high-end camera camera smartphone hybrid with a decent camera and a high-end SoC and pretty much good specs. What what I was disappointed about was the battery size, 2600 uh, milliamp hours, which is kind of weird because the device was quite thick and quite heavy. I don't know what they put in there. That uh, Camera bits. Camera bits, yeah. Maybe. The CM1 is also expensive. It's 900 euros. Yeah, 900 euros for a combination smartphone plus uh, essentially a, a, you know, a semi-professional level camera with a fixed lens but gives four times optical. It's going to really depend on the quality of the camera. If, 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 it's, if it can compete with the dedicated micro three-thirds, then yeah, it might be worth it. But Again, it's another yeah. one that we've asked for a review sample for. We just need to ring around and find the right people to uh, get Andre one. A lot of the rest of the show was a mixture of announcements and you know discussions about products coming or products being talked about. And one of the big you know announcements on upcoming products um, was a bit of a surprise out of the blue. Yeah. Snapdragon 820, despite the fact that 810 is only just coming into devices. So yeah, fine, Qualcomm finally announced that the that they are working on a custom ARM V8 core, the Cryo. They finally disclosed the architecture name, and yeah, it's gonna, it's coming. Yeah, more so the end of the year. Yeah, we heard like something towards the end of the year availability might be only in like spring 2016. So, so this time next year we might hear about 820 devices, or we may see one. For sure, hear more details on the SoC, but what's in it what kind of GPU we have, what kind of char characteristics the cryo is, what we're going to see in, com in comparison with ARM's A72. Yeah, ARM A72 was a, a pretty big pre-announcement to the show, wasn't it? Yeah, ARM announced it like in the first week of February, and now in the show we saw MediaTek. 
Sony having it in silicon. That was quite a surprise. From, from an out, from, clearly MediaTek had been working with ARM on this a lot longer than three weeks. Yeah. Um, but we don't normally see silicon in a telescope. We must admit it wasn't working silicon. Yeah. Or, or at least they didn't have it working. They just showed it on a PCB. But to have something that says, yes, this is an SOC with dual A72s and dual A53s. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so it's a, so it's a two by two. Two by two, because, uh, which I found kind of weird. I still think four by two is the best option to go. Too big for small. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's the best option in terms of power, efficiency, and die size. I'm not sure two A57s are going to make that much sense. Well, it's, it's it's still early days for A72. You know, th- th- this literally was just silicon in hand. Bash, let's go. Let's yeah. see it. Um, I'm sure over the next three to six months we'll see other yeah. people. But with... is it clean that they're going to ship during summer, I think? The sampling in the next few weeks, next few months. And so it's we, a... we should be seeing devices already this year with it. So, so that's it... much earlier than what's um, scheduled they pretty much announced it uh, as a 2016 CPU architecture, so yeah. to see it already this year, this early, is quite intriguing. So Computex comes up in June. We'd probably see a lot more about it then if we don't know much more about both, both 820 and 872, whether we actually see anything working or not on display is up in the air, uh, up for people to predict. Another interesting element from Qualcomm's set of news announcements uh, was their fingerprint scanning technology, which relies on ultrasonics. So rather than a capacitive touch type sensor, we have ultrasonic sensing, which is able to detect more ridges and pores within a fingerprint to, for more accuracy. And there's some talk about whether you know, devices coming up in the market are specifically waiting for this technology to become available before they can launch their devices. It's fingerprint scanning is one of those things that I'm not entirely convinced of. But then again, I played around with the first generation devices, and they were they needed yeah. improvement. Whether this new technology actually brings something new to the table, other than that. I still think fingerprint scan- uh, scanning is still pretty much a gimmick. I've had the Meizu MX4 Pro, which had a touch-based fingerprint scanner. I played around with it a few days, but then I just removed it because it was just not useful for me. I, I don't really use a lock screen. I just swipe open. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so, 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 yeah, everybody picked perfect Andre. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the the main issue there is not obviously it's a consumer feature, but for businesses that requires levels of security, it's it's that extra, it's that plus feature, right? On the business side, that's something that's needed. On the business side, for the paranoid paranoid people, the business is always paranoid. Yeah. You you can't escape that. It'll be most talked about in the consumer space, but it'll probably matter more in the business space. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. Well, Qualcomm also announced their modem rebranding into this X X range. Exactly. Um, and at the top of that range was X12. I think, yeah, X12, you're right. Yeah, X12. A, which is, oddly enough, a category 10 modem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah the, we we it, asked them about it, what's up with the naming, and they said, yeah, would that have been otherwise too simple? <laughs> well, so... It, it still stands at the higher the number, the faster the category of the modem. And they were talking about category 11 LTE, which is the next thing in throughput, if throughput's your goal. I mean, personally, I'm still not on LTE because I find LTE too expensive, to be honest. Pretty much same thing here is to have to pay a pretty outrageous price to get into LTE while I have my 10 euro 3G Unlimited data, yeah. Not even unlimited, I live in Luxembourg, so there's no real telecom competition there, so I'm still happy with my 10-year, 1-gigabyte 3G plan. (laughs) Well, so so for both of us, we're both in our late 20s. For us, LTE would still be a premium expense. This is is basic LTE, let alone LTE high throughput. We're still not even seeing in Europe or even in the US pretty much a 
expansion of carrier aggregation. So all those cat sys, six modems, cat 10, whatever, still not really being used. Mostly a feature for Korea, it seems. Well, so we've we've got a bunch of companies all coming out with their high-end category LTE modems or integrating their modems into their SOCs, and the infrastructure still needs to catch up. It's The technology is outpacing the real world. It's a weird scenario, but if you're able to take advantage of it, good on you. And one other thing that Qualcomm were also announcing was LTE and Wi-Fi link aggregation. So you can seamlessly transfer calls between LTE, Volte, and Wi-Fi, which is an interesting thing such that you, you, know, you can use the cheaper data plan, depending on where you are, depending on the software that you're using. When you combine that with multi-SIM areas, you can perhaps move on to the cheaper tariff and everything else. Link aggregation, being able to aggregate between all these different RF technologies has been a goal of this industry and the RF leaders, which in this instance is usually Qualcomm, they're moving that aggregation together, which is something that they they think the industry needs. It's not something they would do if they didn't see that there was an end goal in profit, um, which is one thing they definitely told us in our meeting. Um, they like to do things for profit, as do most businesses. One big element pre-announcement to the show was Intel's SOC line is renamed because I didn't necessarily understand it. Z3760, Z3520. I have still no idea which one is which. I still don't have any. <laughs> now, now you don't need to um, because the whole Atom line is being renamed similar to the desktop line, instead of i3, i5, and i7, we now have x3, x5, and x7. x3 represents the smartphone space, featuring the Sophia line of SOCs. So this is 28 nanometer Bay Trail with Mali GPUs. They announced three SKUs, a basic dual-core model, a quad-core made with in association with Rockchip. So this is the first time we're seeing a product formally announced using the Rockchip partnership, which was, we, we reported on that back in March 2014, if memory serves me correctly. The fact that Rockchip has all these fingers into Asia and China, we're finally seeing an SOC for that region, and it just so happens to be quad-core 28 nanometer bay trail. And then on the high end of the X3 Sophia line, we have integrated LTE. Is this Cat3, Cat4 LTE? I don't remember quite. Oh, oh, no. oh, I, I remember the slide. It said Cat 4 to Cat 6. So I think it varied. Yeah, it, it varied it, on back end, on the RF back end, if you had carrier aggregation or not. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it depended on the customer what, what, he, what the customer wants to integrate on the actual board. So I think the modem is actually capable of Cat 6. Yeah, yeah. So you get what you pay for. <laughs> and and what market you're in. That Sophia X3 line goes that way, and then we have X5 and X7, which is aimed at tablets and two-in-ones. So this is going this is going from the essentially the seven-inch device all the way up to the ten-inch device for X5 and X7, approaching on that sort of core M four and a half watt Broadwell Y part at the top end. This meet so X5 and X7 are 14 nanometer cherry trail parts, and not a lot of information was given regarding any specifications beyond that. Yeah, I think they're, they're not even sampling yet; it's just an announcement the, the, for the, now. Yeah, we, we we had we had a very small paragraph announcement at CES, and this is you know a slightly more expanded one. But you know, for, first 14 nanometer SOCs. With uh, for tablets using Cherry Trail Generation 8 graphics, so we've got the increased graphics over the Gen 7.5. But chances are we're more likely to see devices coming in um, around that June Computex time. I'm sure there'll be some on display, if not already being sold. The interesting discussion we had with Intel, um, we were able to spend some time with Aisha Evans, the uh, VP General Director of the Mobile Comms Group, 
we're going to publish a full transcribed interview that we had with her. And one of the interesting things to come out of that interview was the next thing for the X3 line, that 28 nanometer Bay Trail rock chip integrated LTE line, would be executing that onto 14 nanometer with Cherry Trail. When we asked whether they're going to stick with Mali or graphics or Gen 8 graphics, um, she said that's still up for discussion. Though if, if, if I were to put money on that, if I were to put down my 10 bucks, I'd probably say they'd go Gen 8 graphics. I think they're still going to continue with the imagination. I'm not sure Gen 8 is going to scale down that much in power to actually be used in a smartphone. smartphone. So, yeah, we'll see. They said that they work very closely with ARM, and I'm I'm inclined to yeah. read that because they're both big players. So yeah, we saw the Mali GPUs in the X3 lines, which is which was very weird. But uh, yeah, apparently it was a time to market uh, decision. Yeah, Get, getting f- things out as fast as possible. So yeah, that's gonna have. When Aisha spoke with Anand back in 2013, I think it was. It was her discussions were all about time to market, time to market execution everything that computes connects and the impression i got with her this time round is exactly the same time to market mate if you can't hit your deadlines with the next products then everything gets delayed and given the fact that they started behind means that they have to have an accelerated schedule in order to catch up to the bigger players especially in the instance where they're going after market share and volume and not necessarily peak all our performance right now. Yeah, we especially saw that when talking with Aisha that uh, she was talking about the modem side of things, the 7160. It was promised, it was executed, 7260 promised, executed, and now the 7360 promised. Right. Let's see how it goes. Right, and every prediction that she made back with Anand in the set of videos they did with, um, for Intel in terms of getting you know, the Sophia line out to market on time, they were all met, uh, they said, by Q1 2015, Sophia would be fully ready to be shipped. And the fact that they were able to do that, and the fact that 14, 14 nanometer is coming, Intel has a history of executing on time, and now that 14 nanometer as a process is finally steadying in terms of yield levels, so we hear. It's going to be an interesting time to see how Atom develops because obviously they're the small players in a very big market. Yeah. And that's, and Intel are trying to change that. We also met up with SanDisk and last year SanDisk went crazy and announced 128 gigabyte micro SD cards. And at the time we were like, that's amazing. When everybody else had 64 yeah, gigabyte so cards. This time around, they announced 200 gigabyte micro SD cards, while everybody else is still fiddling about with 128 gigabyte micro SD cards. Uh, I think the SanDisk still has a monopoly on the 128 gigabyte. Yeah, I just, 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 they probably yeah. still have most of the market share. Yeah, I don't doubt that. I think only Samsung is the, the real, other, <coughs> only real other competition on the SD card space. We spoke with SanDisk and on this because things like the Samsung S6 now doesn't have a micro SD card, whether that affects sales. They said it probably does, but the market itself, everybody wants more storage. So whether it's in micro SD form or whether it's in in the phone storage, because SanDisk are a big provider of in-phone memory, the EMMC. Exactly. So... They also announced the new hybrid EMMC, the 7130, I think. Well, so 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 this is this is EMMC, which um, if anybody follows the SSD market, the big thing in SSDs recently is that you have um, a set of memory uh, a memory cell die, which is uh, TLC, so three bits per cell, but you partition some of it as one bit per cell as SLC because SLC has faster read and write speeds. And this hybrid EMMC has this three bit per cell, one bit per cell sections of the memory. And with the right algorithms, you move the bits around such that you retain the peak speed. 
And this announcement means, hopefully means that the, one of the major bottlenecks that have been in smartphones has been storage speed. Yeah, so they pretty much promise around one gigabit per second uh, speed on the SLC side of things. I actually asked Sandis how big this buffer is. They said they wouldn't want to disclose it to me. It was several hundred megabytes, they said, depending on the, 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 size. the size of the module, if it was 16, 32, or 64 gigabytes. Well, that, that, that kind of makes sense, because in the SSD space, with 128 gig SSD, you get 3 gig of uh, SLC. And on the 1 terabyte drives, you have 12 gig. So it's 1.2%, basically. 1.2% of your memory is partitioned as the SLC. Yeah, so several hundred megabytes. I'm not sure if that's correct, but if it's back on the SSD side, it's going to be around 600 for 64 gigabytes. Yeah. Yeah, which is... This is probably all you need, really. The the only yeah. time, the only time you're gonna beat that is if you're transferring large files, and even yeah, that even that you're bottlenecked by the interfaces by USB two. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. USB two usually. Um, it's it's interesting. We didn't mention when we discussed the S six and the S six Edge the fact that we we've got it listed down as USB two, whereas the previous one was USB three. Yeah, we already saw that in the Note 4, they they moved back from the USB 3. I think it's still too bulky. People didn't really like it. It wasn't very practical, so just Samsung pretty much moved the... Well, USB Type-C, hopefully. Yeah, we still didn't see it uh, in this year's new flagship, so maybe towards the end of the year, or maybe even next year, Mm. we're going to see a move towards uh, the Type-C connector. On the SanDisk hybrid EMC... Sandisk also explains that their memory was designed to be context-aware. So depending on what type of usage scenario you're doing, it will either use the SLC or not use the SLC. So bulk file transfer doesn't need the SLC. So you don't use it, especially when what you're copying is more than the SLC. Yeah, that's still kind of a black box mystery, what's going on on the software side, on the firmware side, inside of the EMMC. So... We're going to have to test that out, how it works out in real-world real users. Well, we have to get Christian onto the uh, EMCMC yeah, testing. pretty much. going to have to send him a smartphone. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure he has at least one that he uses. Um, but yeah, we should send him more. More announcements on the smartphone tech side, especially one from Broadcom, which caught my interest, um, especially as uh, one of the main uh, desktop um, reviewers at Nantech. This, this was simultaneous dual band Wi-Fi, which means you have two radio ICs on this. You have two 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 radios on the same IC. Yeah, pretty much they double up on the the microprocessors inside of the Wi-Fi uh, SOC. This means that you can have. One radio scanning 5 gigahertz and one radio scanning 2.4 gigahertz simultaneously. So this reduces your time to finding APs. Yeah, so pretty much we already have double the RF uh, backends, one for the the 2.4 gigahertz frequency, one for the 5 gigahertz frequency, but the bottleneck was on the microcontroller on the DSP itself of the Wi-Fi SOC. So now they doubled up on that. They're using Cortex, Cortex M4s, I think. M4s should be that. <laughs> yeah. So along with you know dual band scanning, you also have dual data displacement. So if one if one band is saturated doing one thing, you can use the other radio to do something else on on the other band. The interesting another interesting thing that Broadcom said about this is they. They're aiming it more at the smartphone space. Yeah, I can see uses in the desktop space. Yeah. It's in, in, in the desktop space, everybody's looking for that edge. Everybody's looking for that feature that nobody else has. Recently, Asus used 3x3 AC Wi-Fi modules, and the fact that everybody else is still using 2x2 AC, I'm sure, I'm sure one of the motherboard manufacturers is going to say, well, we also do simultaneous dual-band Wi-Fi, and I think that could be used in that space as well. But... The, the fact that you can reduce your time scanning 
and also the power of such an IC, they said, was only, it, it was less than 50% extra for using one radio. So you're not doubling on power because you can share the same backends, share some resources between the two radios. So power usage is, yeah, the realm of smartphones and tablets and everything else. One more element to the show, especially in the IoT wearable space, is the discussion regarding using LTE as the main device to cloud talking point. So we're talking category one and category zero LTE. Now category one is capable by the infrastructure already. This is 10 megabits per second type LTE connections. And Cat Zero is there needs to be some upgrades. We were told, but can uh, do one megabit per second. So this is we were told this is for your smartwatches, your smartphones, your smart meters. Smart meters, especially, we saw some very enthusiastic uh, opportunities from uh, out there. Yeah, yeah. So this is when you have you know your meter at home. It needs a ten-year battery life, so you want it to be ultra low power, but you want it to be able to you want the data to be sent into the cloud and be used and analyzed. Yeah, I think the most of the issue was uh, in terms of the network availability. They wanted something which is going to last 10, 15 years. And, and you uh, can't do that on 2G and 3G and networks. Two, yeah, they got, they're being phased out slowly now. LTE is going to be around a while. 5G is still pretty high in the sky. Yeah, we're still talking about 2020 or even more mm -hmm. until we even see introduction. So, yeah, LTE is going to be around for pretty much as long as 2G, I think. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much, yeah. So, Altair were discussing the fact that they have, they almost have devices ready to ship, but they're talking with a lot of customers. We also talked this space with Intel, who said they were coming soon. Um, unfortunately, they didn't say anything more than that. The the last element to the show um, is actually the highlight for me, and this was testing out HTC's virtual reality headset. It's it's called the Vive or the Revive, depending on how and where you see it. Obviously, HTC released the Re camera recently, and Re and Vive makes Revive. But yeah, so the HTC Vive, this is their hardware headset working with Valve and Steam VR to provide the uh, software backbone and in amongst the virtual reality, you know, the, who are the big players? You've got Oculus owned by Facebook um, plowing money into this left, right and center. You've got Samsung doing something semi-interesting with, you know, being able to stick a smartphone in front of your eyes and if you look as long as you have the right lenses and the right software, then you can do virtual reality that way. And HTC, they've clearly been working with Valve at this. They must have been working on it for the best part of two years. You, you saw the hardware, Andre. It was, it was, it was a headset with a load of infrared sensors on it. Were they infrared sensors? I don't know. I, I, or or la la laser sensors. It was. They just talked with you. You were NDA, so I have no <laughs> idea what was going on there. So, 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 so they 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 led me into a room, uh, a room which we couldn't picture. Um, but it was essentially a room several meters square. And in the middle, there was a headset with a bunch of wires coming out of it and two handheld controllers. So the, these controllers, it was, imagine the standard, you know, PlayStation controller, but you could separate the two halves, one in each hand. Yeah, like I said, like one of the Wiimotes. Yeah, yeah. yeah so the Wiimote to stick so thing. Imagine, imagine a Wiimote in one hand, in, one in each hand. Um, so you have your forefinger has a trigger, but you you could grip each side of the controller. So there was two grip buttons on each side, and your thumb controls. It's not a directional pad. The best way to describe it is um, you remember those Steam controller renders, where you 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 just had like a bowl and you could move your finger around it. But each each of the controllers had this this bowl. Um, so you had a bowl, a trigger, and two grips. The, the the demo that they provided was for select media only, uh, one person per media organization, and you got 30 minutes before you were kicked out because they were so busy. So put on the headset, the the HTC uh, guide 
um, who was one of their European marketing managers, um, if I remember correctly, he put on a headset which had, which I could hear him through. He was speaking through a microphone while controlling the demo. But when we had the headset on, he put out two controllers in front of my face, and I could actually see them inside you know the virtual reality scene. And I reached out, I grabbed them, and you know I had controllers, and wherever I moved them, that's where the controllers went. And I started pressing, he told me to start pressing the trigger buttons, and I pressed the trigger button, and a balloon came out of one of the controllers. It just went, and then you let go of the trigger, and the balloon flies off, and then you could hit it with your hand. You know, what you normally do with balloons when you're blowing them up, you, you blow them up, you tie them up, throw them up in the air, and you bat them away and go to the next one. But we went through a series of demos, um, you know, a few minutes on each demo, some of them were static, such as we had an underwater scene, um, just to show um, how depth perception works, and you could look over. You were standing on a sunken ship, and you could stand, look over the edge and see how far down it was, and then this massive whale came by, and you could see all the level of, level of detail in the whale. Uh, one of the other non-interactive scenes was a tabletop game, and you could see it actually in action, people fighting in... Because of the way the room was set up, you could actually walk around the room. You could walk around the table, you could look at the table from different angles, you could stick your head inside models and see out of, out of the 3D models. Um, and there was a few Easter eggs, like if you looked on the side of the wall, you could see units sleeping and everything else. But I think the thing that really sold the idea for me was the interactive elements for the, for the virtual reality. So we had... The first interactive element was a, a cooking scene. It was a kitchen. It was meant to be representative of a game, uh, you know, one of those games where you make hamburgers for orders and stuff, and you had an order in front of you, and it said two onions, two mushrooms, a piece of bread, you know, steak, whatever. And so you're sitting there in front, in front, and the controllers, you know, through my field of vision, had turned into hands, and I picked things up using the trigger, so you hold the trigger down, you pick something up and then you could move it and drop it. You couldn't move things between hands and you couldn't throw things up and catch it with the other hand, unfortunately. But, you know, what was the first thing I do? Uh, I get a slice of bread and I put it in the pan that's right next to me. Um, I then get the rolling pin. I pick up the rolling pin and because it's a game, there's a robot helper. And I threw it at the robot helper and he said, thank you, human, as, as game developers are wanting to do. But the thing that happened next was... It was interesting from the HTC guide that was there, who was you know, kind of half instructing me to do these things. But I picked up a bit of meat and I accidentally dropped it on the floor. And the first thing I did was pick it up. It was something that felt entirely natural, and I had I, I literally just bent down with, with you know actually moving my knees, moved down, put my hand down, held the trigger to pick up the steak, and I picked it up. And the HTC guide came over the radio and said, "I can't believe you just did that." And I said, "Do what?" It felt that natural. I was completely immersed in what I was doing. I've, I've done the Oculus Crescent Bay demo that they did at CES, and I don't remember something like that happening. That, you know, sort of, huh, did I just do something special? No, that was just me normally doing it. And the Crescent Bay demo was designed to wow, and this one was just to be normal, I think, which is, you know, one of the key, the key elements in VR is as long as you can do everything you do normally, then it's going to feel natural. So with, with this cooking demo, I moved over to a fridge, I opened a fridge, I took, took out a steak, I put it in the microwave, I then got a bottle of wine and put it in the microwave and tried to uh, cut an onion. I actually picked up a knife and put an onion on the chopping board and went to cut it and the knife shattered. And then I put the onion on a plate and pressed a bell twice and the plate flew away because the game was to make the dish and I didn't make the dish because I was too busy seeing how I could break the game and that's what that's, that's what VR is about. I mean I could do all of that in my normal kitchen at home but in my normal kitchen at home it's going to cost me money to replace the steak I just threw away or the microwave was just broken because I tried to microwave wine but as an interactive demo it felt natural and that's what you want VR to do. They also gave us a sort of creation type VR demo. It was, uh, it was it's essentially Microsoft Paint, but in 3D, and you're not dealing with individual pixels. 
but you your right hand was a paintbrush, and so you pulled the trigger and you you could move around in 3D and paint a 3D structure. So you could you know, draw a flower or anything else that comes to mind. And then on the left hand, you could it was essentially a palette. So you moved your right hand over to your left hand, and you could select your color from a 360 color wheel. Or if you swiped left or right with your left hand, you could change it so it felt like you were doing an oil painting, or you can paint a rainbow, so you get the rainbow tool and you... You know that thing you do with sparklers and long exposure cameras? And, yeah, you, can, much, yeah. and you can do in and out, up and down, in and out, up and down. Well, this was essentially what I was doing with, with the paint, and you could just paint anything. And it's an example of, you know, things that creative that could be done. So the thing that came to my mind after the demo was, imagine that you're an architect, and you've got to walk around your bridge that you're designing and things you know need to be painted or you could actually use a tool to move things in and out and it would recalculate the forces on the structure and you could do this in VR that'd be pretty amazing or say you were a game developer and you had a 3D model of an alien that you were doing you could put it in your VR put a headset on and you could see all the colors from all the different angles and make sure everything came across correct Accurate 3D model creation would be one application, which would be interesting, I think. Whether like, you, whether you actually what, created or whether you modified, I think modification. Modification, yeah, modification. I'm imagining if you will would be actually sculpting a model with such a feature. Well, so that 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 was one of the things I actually uh, I I tested tried to test accuracy while in this demo because obviously a sculptor needs accuracy. Yeah. And I was so I was drawing lines using the rainbow tool, and I moved I moved my hand in and up, and then I stopped, and then I moved you know millimeters at a time to see when the next time it would you know it would paint on the screen. Yeah. And I had to move maybe you know 12 millimeters, half an inch. So that was the level of accuracy in the demo. Now whether that's a limitation of the hardware or whether that's a limitation of the software. I mean, everything was still development. I mean, it was the development kit after all. So VR is going to have problems with precision, I think. Precision, I mean, not only do is there hardware problems with you know, resolution and you know, interactivity and software, but precision is going to be one thing that's going to be difficult. If you've ever played Surgeon Simulator, sometimes you know, VR can feel a bit like that. I'm pulling a ribcage out and sawing lungs and everything else. Joggy fingers. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah it it can be because unless VR has actual gloves, then you're never gonna have the same precision as your own hands. Yes, as you would want yeah. it to be. Exactly, exactly. Now the final demo is one that I've I've seen a few. There have been a few videos online from DEC about this, but yes, there was a portal demo. Um, you took the role of a robot inside a box and it was your goal to try and fix other robots and one of the first things you do is pull out drawers and I pull and you pull out the wrong drawer and you see cake that's obviously gone old so you put it back and you open another drawer and there's like a mini portal universe that sees you and you know worships you as a god, so you have to burn it. Um, then you go to another door, pull, pull the lever, and a robot comes out. Robot gets strapped into a harness, and Glados takes you through trying to repair it. But obviously, Glados gives you commands that you have no idea what they mean or what they do, and so eventually the robot disintegrates because you couldn't repair him in time. Glados comes down, says, "How can a robot be that you know that idiotic?" And then it says, oh, it's you, you know, in that sort of condescending voice that GLaDOS has, realizes that you're a human, and then all the walls fade away. And if you've ever played Portal 2, and you've been in those areas where you see all the rooms being made, and you can see for miles of, you know, all the levers and everything else being around, you could just see that all around. Then eventually the walls were replaced, for the start of a portal level and there was a companion cube and then the demo ended and they wouldn't say any more than that such a teaser <laughs> Te yeah. pretty jealous of you that you 
you experienced it. It would have been curious to see it too. I mean, valve time is a thing, so they're not obviously not putting any you know estimates on dates on anything. Though interestingly, HTC put a date on um, the VR headset of by the end of the year they want to have commercial units out. What did they say about uh, the dev kit? So, so they're not releasing specs of the dev kit until they have enough dev kits to supply the devs. Um, and they said they needed somewhere in the region of 400 to 600 dev kits, and they should be ready by the end of next month, or this month, within four weeks anyway. Um, so we'll get more information about the dev kit hardware in four weeks, um, hopefully to the same level that we see the Oculus um, hardware specs that they've released on the Crescent Bay stuff. But, I mean, I, I've had a chance to try Crescent Bay, Samsung Gear VR, and now the HTC Vive Steam VR thing. And if you told me that I had to spend money on one of these right now, I would go for the HTC one. Not necessarily um, for detail. I mean, the Oculus demo was incredibly detailed. They put a lot of time into that and it was clear polygon counts were high and it was you know, a high resolution scene and HTC didn't have that level of detail except perhaps the portal demo. But for sheer interactivity, the HTC wins. The potential for the future, um, the HTC solution is using Valve and Valve has enough franchises to make the world implode if they ever decide to Moves them, moves them onto VR, and then you know you also have all the. While Oculus have been working with developers for years, Valve still has that ecosystem of developers, which is essentially everybody except EA, which could take advantage of something of this nature. So yeah, I would put my money to buy the HTC Valve solution if I had to right now. Thankfully, I don't. One of the things that. I quizzed HTC about was what was what's going to happen at launch because it's clear that this stuff is going to be expensive. Not everybody has several meters around in a house to move around, so they're going to have to create a model that just has a simple gyroscope and one that can be used just sitting in your living room, you know, racing sims and using a standard controller. But the thing that has to happen when all this virtual reality gets released is content and Valve have the franchises to release all that content. Pick a Valve game, stick a number three in front of it and it would be exciting to see that game in virtual reality. Whether that actually happens or not, you can either speak to HTC um, corporate and they'll say something and then backtrack or you can speak to Valve and they won't say anything. But I hope there is something that happens when all this stuff gets released. As long as it executes properly, virtual reality is going to be fun. The interesting thing, I mean, all, all, all this virtual reality um, stuff that I experienced, I've written up and put on the website. But a lot of the comments that came on that piece was the fact that some people don't like virtual reality, either because they don't have the capabilities to use virtual reality, so they have visual impairments or they don't see it being of any use, or they think it's a fad, the fact that it was promised years ago and it's still not here yet. The, I mean, the reason why it's still not here yet is because the hardware isn't here yet. I mean, screens have only been getting high resolution in the past two or three years, and they still want higher resolution. No, with the, I, I saw the Gear VR, it's still, you need at least two times, three times that. Yeah, you want at least 4K per eye. I, yeah. Running Four. at 90 hertz plus. So that's an 8K screen. Yeah, they, I mean, speaking with Oculus, they wanted 8K as a ideal, 8K per eye. I think the, that that would be the ideal because I don't know about you, but pretty much for me it was pretty horrible even on QHD. The the Gear VR. On the Gear VR, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I think the Gear VR also had a content issue. Yeah, the content they demoed wasn't spectacular. No, but I actually saw the sub pixels of the the pixel matrix of the display. So you're the sort of person who knows how <laughs> to look for that as well. Well, yeah, I did. So uh, yeah, it's it's. We're still a few years from the ideal hardware. The ideal, yeah. So that's one reason why it's not out yet. 
The second is a lot of a lot of people in the comments were focusing purely on gaming, and I think that's extremely short-sighted because virtual reality has so many so many applications when it comes to business and enterprise and professional level. So you're talking about training people at a distance, providing training programs for surgeons, assuming you have the precision, or having your know, workmen on a site being able to see updates about when deliveries are arriving or when things are happening or how stuff is progressing. A couple of comments in the se in the comments section, a couple of in the comments section, quite quite rightly said that something like Hololens can provide that. And yes, that's true. The virtual reality aspect of VR takes you out of the moment, but it still means imagine being in a classroom. Imagine um, your child or your child's child taking a chemistry lecture at university, but they they're going to a university that's six thousand miles away from where they're sitting because they're sitting in their house with a VR headset and the data is being put to that headset of the chemistry teacher blowing stuff up or just seriously just writing a lecture. Imagine Second Life in VR essentially but you know better gameplay than Second Life. VR has a lot of possibilities and even though IoT is a big thing being talked about if I had to choose between IoT or VR as a big thing, in terms of money, IoT. In terms of excitement, virtual reality. Yeah, pretty much the same thing here. I, don't, I still don't think IoT will be that IoT such a has big its own popular hurdles. thing. Yeah. It's gonna it's gonna have uses, but I don't think it's gonna blow anybody's mind out. Whereas virtual reality could blow somebody's yeah, mind. Yeah. And um, yeah, Grand Theft Auto 10 on virtual reality. Who knows? Or or something else, Cooking Mama, or We 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 Sports, Surgeon Simulator 10, <laughs> Surgeon Simulator 10. Well, I actually found um, software the other day, which means that you can you put your bike at home on a on a on a training stand, and you bike and you hook it up to your PC, and you can ride around mountains with other people. Imagine doing yeah. that with a VR headset. You could ride through the Pyrenees, or you could, you know, do the Tour de France or Tour de Spagna, and all you have is a VR headset on, and you're at home, and it looks normal. It looks natural. Yeah, one big part of that would be 3D modeling, 3D scanning. Yes, and again, it's it's the training aspect. It's you know people wanting to train if they want to bike, if they want to see the world, but they can't move out of their homes for whatever reason. There are so many possibilities of virtual reality. Again, software issue, hardware issue. Come back in five years and we'll see where we are. And that about wraps it up for um, this edition of the Atlantic podcast. Um, it's great having you, Andre. It was my pleasure. First time being here, first time being in the podcast. I hope it wasn't that bad. No, no, it's good. Um, we're definitely going to have to look to do more podcasts in the future, especially with um, you and other, the other mobile guys and talking on PC space with Ryan. Um, that's something that I want to do more of in the future. Um, so as long as you're willing and up for it, and we hope uh, that you guys, the readers, also enjoy these. Let us know in the comments what you think and what things we should focus on and what we shouldn't focus on. I'm not going to say like and share because I'll leave that to YouTube. Um, but thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next time.